Hey, welcome to the Wildcast. Uh, I just had the most wonderful conversation with one of my, I guess I can call him a hero. Uh, Daniel Gordis, Dr. Daniel Gordis has written 13 books. They're all extraordinary books. And he is just an, an extraordinary scholar and uh, very also just great guy, down to earth kind of person. We talked about whether and why the Jewish people, we are not doing a good enough job getting our story out there. We have the most extraordinary story of how we came back to Israel after thousands of years of being away. And yet people only associate Israel with conflict, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Why isn't the broader story being told? We spoke about also judicial reform and all the protests and rallies that are happening in Israel and his views on that subject, as well, of course, as a light topic, the two-state solution. Is the two-state solution dead? And if it is dead, which it seems like, unfortunately, it is in some degree, then what is the alternative? How does Israel continue to live side by side with its Palestinian neighbors? And finally, Rabbi, Rabbi, uh, actually, Dr. Daniel Gordis um, studied at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and his family was a big part of the conservative movement. And I asked him specific questions about an article he penned over 10 years ago about the decline of conservative Judaism. We spoke about Reform Judaism, we spoke about Orthodox Judaism, and what's working and what isn't working. How do we engage millennials in Jewish life today? What mistakes can we learn from and hopefully not repeat? And what are the new things that we can do to make sure to engage young men and women in Judaism here in the United States? And how does Israel play into that? We're actually going to Israel very soon with MGE. We spoke a little about how the trips to Israel, whether it's birthright and MGE trip, are so into integral to reconnecting American Jews to their roots. Take a listen. Okay, welcome to the Wildcast. Um, welcome, Dr. Daniel Gordis. This is a huge honor for me. I'm a fan and... Um, uh, for so many reasons, but we'll, I want to get right into the pictures. I know you're a modest person, so you don't need to hear me laud and praise you. But just one thing I will say at the outset, um, I saw in your bio that Ambassador Dennis Ross, when he's asked, is there one book that I should read about Israel? He hands them your book, um, Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. And I felt very redeemed because I've been doing that since that book <laughs> came out. I really, I well, that's very, very kind of you. I think Dennis Ross tells people about the book. I don't think he quite hands them the book. Although right. if he would buy it by the carton, I would be very happy to thank him. Right. Okay, that would be, all right. Maybe that was an exaggeration. I don't know if he walks around with them, but you know. Mm -hmm. um, your, all your books are amazing. I'm going to jump right into some uh, questions that I've been dying to ask you about Israel and here in the diaspora as well, because you are a very unique individual in being an authority on both. So in that book, Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn, you speak about the creation of the state of Israel as one of the most extraordinary human stories of all time. So tell us a little, why is Israel the most extraordinary human story of all time? And how are we doing here in the diaspora or in Israel? How are we all doing telling that story? Those are both great questions. So let me start off by saying that it's really a pleasure and a real privilege to be with you on this uh, podcast. Um, your work is really inspiring. I mean, what you're doing for the for Am Yisrael in, in America and beyond is truly an inspiration. So that you reached out and asked to have this conversation meant a lot to me, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful. 
why is Israel um, why is Israel an inspiring story? Why is it one of the greatest stories of human redemption? Look, the Jews. We tend to think very often when we tell the story of the Jewish people that the default is we live in our homeland. And we had some exiles, and then we came back from them. But the default setting is that we're we're home in our homeland. And of course, as you well know, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, we have actually had three periods of sovereignty, just to make the math easy, each of them about 75 years long. The first time from the beginning of King David's rule in Jerusalem, not in Hebron, but in Jerusalem, and King Solomon, approximately, it's 74, but it's good enough, 73, 74, but we'll call it 75. The second time during a specific part of the Maccabean rule, the, the Jews did not become sovereign at the moment that we celebrate in the holiday of Hanukkah. They were able to take the temple back, but they did not become sovereign until significantly later. And they were sovereign for another 75 years. And now Israel's 75 years old, which means that it's about 225 years out of 3,000, 4,000, count it however you want. So it's just important for us to, first of all, understand that we are a people with very little experience of being sovereign in our own land. And then, of course, Europe turns on the Jews in the Middle Ages, and it violates or betrays its promise to the Jews, certainly in Western Europe, that modernity was going to be significantly different. Think about the Dreyfus trial, early modernity was not yeah. so different. You can think about continuing programs in Central and Eastern Europe. They hadn't made, in fairness to them, they had not promised the Jews that it would get better, uh, but uh, they certainly were true to their non-promise and, and life was very hard. Now, this is a period in the world where people are, people are establishing nation states. This is the period where nation states are kind of taking off, except all those other nation states are founded by people who are living there. What the Jews had to do was they had to pick up, move to a place that was a backwater, collect the money so that they could little buy little plots here, there, and everywhere else. They had no experience in running these organizations. They had no experience in agriculture because they were excluded from agriculture. They had no experience in living with each other. A Yemenite Jew and a, and a, and a Polish Jew never saw each other, didn't even know about each other. A Moroccan Jew and an and a Austrian Jew. What were they going to share in common? So we're from different backgrounds. We don't speak the same language. We have no agriculture experience. We have zero experience in defending ourselves. Uh, the area is hostile. And from 1897, when Herzl comes out with the first Zionist Congress and writes in his diary, today I founded, this summer I founded the Jewish state, uh, it's 50 years till 1947 when the UN votes. And don't forget, in that 50 years, as you well know, obviously, is the Shoah. Uh, and we tend to say that, you know, Hitler killed a third of the world's Jews, which is pretty horrifying as it is, or six million is pretty horrifying as it is. But we have to remember that Poland is the crown jewel of the Jewish world. There are Jews in lots of different places, but there are three million Jews in Poland. And the crown jewel in terms of Torah learning, in terms of profoundly committed Jewish communities, in terms of Jews in secular knowledge, beginning to be part of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, it's Poland. It's really largely Poland. And what happens during the Second World War in Poland? At the end of the war, there's 300,000 Jews left. He, he slaughtered 90% of the world's Jews. So given all of those standard long-term challenges and what had happened to the Jews, and don't forget the Zionists, in, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but it's painful to say, but it needs to be said. When the Zionists looked at Europe and saw what was happening, they were horrified about what was happening to the Jewish people, but they were also horrified to see 
what was happening to the raw materials, so to speak, from which they were going to build their country. Those were the millions of Jews who were supposed to come to Israel, and they were gone. Uh, and so every reason in the world this should have failed. And look where we are. It's really very hard to think of another people in the world that had been through what the Jews had been through, which had not been which had not been sovereign in any meaningful way for thousands of years. And in the space of 50 years, from zero to 60 and 50 years, from nothing, a bunch of Jews in Basel at a conference to the vote of the United Nations. It's extraordinary. How well are we telling that story? I will say that both in Israel and America, here we're bonded deeply together, we're doing a horrible job. Mm -hmm. We're doing a horrible job because we talk about the current issues of Israel and the Palestinians. We're not, you know, we're not an apartheid state. We, we didn't do this. We didn't do that. Um, nobody talks anymore about why did we create this state? Go to American Jews. Go to a typical American Jew in a, uh, in a, in a very good Jewish day school, high school, and ask them, why did the Jews found the state? They'll say either refuge or they'll say anti-Semitism. That's not entirely false, obviously. Right. But they'll say nothing about the rebirth of the Jewish people in its ancestral homeland. They'll say nothing about the vitality of Jewish life that you feel every time that you're here, that I feel all the time living here. That's what this place is about. This place was about restoring the pulse of Jewish life, Jewish creativity, Jewish history as the, as the calendar that we live and so on and so forth. Uh, Jew, Judaism here is just different. It's, it's three-dimensional in a way that it can't be anywhere else. Uh, and we don't do a good job in Israel of telling that story. Um, and we don't do a good job in America of telling that story. And we've got to figure out how to teach ourselves and others better. Well, uh, first of all, thank you. I mean, some people are hearing that story because, like yourself, you made Aliyah. Uh, it's not very compelling to make Aliyah today because Israel's a safe haven if you feel safe in America. Uh, you're gonna, you're only gonna be inspired to go if you've actually internalized, you know, that story that you just shared. I mean, right. it is incredible. It is incredible. Um, let me take you into what we're, what's happening today. Let me ask you, um, without getting into the nitty gritties, are you uh, distressed by all the protests and rallies that are now taking place, whether it's over judicial reform or it's against the Netanyahu government. You know, I've been telling, and tell me if you think I'm being naive, whenever my students bring it up, I'm not shying away from the issues, but I do think it's important to recognize that, you know, people taking to the streets and not being silenced and being able to just express their points of view, you know, maybe if we focused a little more on that <laughs> and not simply on what is right. dividing everybody, I don't know, I don't, is that being naive? <laughs> No, I don't think it's being naive at all. I think it's being very wise, actually. Look, um, this is a very, very complicated issue, or it's a very complicated set of issues. The truth of the matter is that on the judicial reform stuff itself, most people would tell you, and most people who know something about it, uh, would tell you that there's very much room for judicial reform. In fact, there's a need for judicial reform. Uh, but most people who know something about it would also tell you that this particular form of judicial reform would have pushed Israel probably over the edge of what people define as a liberal democracy. So the challenge for those of us who would like to see judicial reform, but not this judicial reform, is where mm -hmm. do we put, in what basket do we put our eggs? We don't want to support the government because the government's trying to push this whole thing through a whole hog. Uh, but you don't want to, you feel uncomfortable with the protests because the protesters are saying all sorts of things 
um, that I'm not personally there. I do go to the protests and I'll come back to that in a second, but I, I don't go there to topple the Netanyahu government. I started going to the protests to protest against judicial reform. I want Israel to have judicial review because that is pretty much a litmus test for a liberal functioning democracy. Yes, I know there are functioning democracies that don't have judicial review, but they are not analogous to Israel in any other way. They have a bicameral parliament. We have the unicameral parliament. They have a separation of the executive and the legislative areas combined. And for all sorts of reasons, we're definitely not going to go into now. The analogy between us and other countries that don't have judicial review but are functioning democracies is a bad analogy because too much mm -hmm. is different. Uh, somebody like me is therefore really in a bind in, in Israel. Um, what do I do? So I do go to the protests. I do not join the chant of Imlo Shivyon Nafaltem Al Halon The rhyme is great, but if there's not a quality by which they mean the judicial reform, which would they think and the quality, then we're going to topple the government. You pounced on the wrong generation. So first of all, I am hardly that generation. They see me, they want to bring out oxygen. But beyond <laughs> that, um, I'm not, I'm, that's not why I'm there. And I had a choice of going or not going. Now you can't split this, this protest up into all different sorts of slices. If you believe exactly this, go here. If you believe exactly that, go there. Right. That's right. what's the mistake that we've made politically here all along. So I do go to the protests. I do chant the democracy chant. I don't chant that we're going to topple the government chant. Obviously, that's a ludicrous, you know, only I know that. <laughs> and when the drone is above counting all the people, I know I'm getting counted and whatever. Uh, so it's it's a painful time. What I'm mostly distraught about is the um, is the is the really deep divide in Israel. And, um, you know, you want to have a debate with you or me or anybody else, I could take either side in should pilots not be serving. It's totally legitimate. It's totally illegitimate. I could make both cases very compellingly. Mm -hmm. um, the protesters should be able to go to the airport um, and or it gets in people's way. It's summer vacation, protest in the parks, but don't go to the airport. I can make either argument very, I think, very compellingly. So this is very gray. Uh, at the end of the day, what I hope will emerge from this is a compromise. I think that we will get there. I really do believe we're going to get there. Um, I may be naive. You said you might be naive before. If you're naive, then I'm also naive, and maybe we'll go down the naive highway together. That would be wonderful company. Um, but I really do hope and pray that we're going to get to a uh, some sort of compromise. Between now and getting to that compromise could be very ugly. Mm -hmm. uh, and we just have to hope that it doesn't cross the line of nonviolent and non-destructive. Right. Right. Um, the verbiage itself is pretty destructive as it is already, but we can't cross that line. Only thing I'll add, Rabbi Wiles, is that you know, if you are a protester, not me, but somebody in your 30s, just married, couple kids, you want this to be the country where your kids are going to grow up, and you say to yourself five weeks from now, you know what? The peaceful protests are not working. The government just doesn't give a damn. Right. Um, then what do you do? Do you say, I want to tell my children and my grandchildren, well, we tried. You know, we really did try. We we're out there every Saturday night for 40 weeks, but it didn't work. And we were obviously not going to become people that crossed the legality line. And then the grandchildren will say, yeah, but like, what'd you leave us with? Um, or do you say, I don't want to have to have that conversation with my grandchildren. So yeah, I'm going to do some stuff that's not legal, hopefully not hurting any people. Right. It's a horrible, horrible conundrum to be in. Um, and I'm very grateful that I am not running the protests because these are very smart people who meet and talk all day long amongst themselves every day, plotting, planning, trying to 
remind us all to be nonviolent, which they do all the time, but they've got to be asking themselves, what if this doesn't work? Right. Then where do we go? And I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, that's been an issue. It's so interesting the way you you frame that because, I mean, that's been an issue in every civil rights, human rights movement. Dr. King was so lauded and praised because he wouldn't cross that line. But he you did, know? right? I mean, when they crossed the bridge, that was against the law. I forget what state right. it was in, and I that's should know, point. but I'm embarrassed that I don't know. But crossing that bridge was a big deal because that was the moment that he said, it doesn't matter what the law says, we're going to cross the bridge. Now, crossing the bridge looks like, you know, right. not a big deal, but it was it was basically Dr. King's statement, and you're so right to raise him as an example, that staying totally, you know, coloring only within the lines, so to speak, mm-hmm. would not have gotten African-Americans where they needed to get. And in Israel, by the way, people have become voracious consumers of the most arcane sociological research on what kind of protests work and what kind of protests don't work. I mean, it's always these Scandinavian researchers and European researchers, they make their way into the Israeli Hebrew press. Israelis really wanna know. And what most of the data shows is that protests like Portland and Seattle get you absolutely nothing because Mm -hmm. you just radiate hatred towards your country and you don't win anybody's loyalty over. Either you're part of that group or people are disgusted with you. Um, but equally importantly, totally legal protests do not win. The protests that win are the ones that cross the line of legality into the illegal sphere, but without becoming Portland, Seattle, God forbid, hurting people, trashing businesses and so forth. Um, and how they're going to navigate that, I think, is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. Uh, I have no idea what the plan is. Wow. I mean, that's it's. Um... It's a dangerous, you know, it's, it is a slippery slope. I, I have a son who lives in Israel. And um, when a couple of Jewish people went into some Arab neighborhood recently and started um, doing all sorts of things randomly, it appeared randomly to some Arabs, um, our son was very upset about it, but he has a friend who was like, well, listen, if the government is not going to crack down on terrorism like we think it should, then, you know, we need to go in and, you know, instill the fear of God in some of these people. Which, of course, is not going to work. I mean, you can understand the feeling of being abandoned by the army. That, I think, is a very understandable feeling because the, the attitude of the people that live in these settlements is, oh, my God, it's one of the most powerful armies in the world. What do you mean you can't protect me from these gunmen who are shooting us in the streets? You know, that is a very understandable sentiment. But going into an Arab village and killing some random person who probably had, or burning Korans or churching people's houses, all that does is increase hate of the Jewish people. And it's a chilul Hashem. I mean, it's a desecration of God's sacred name because that is not the image of Jews that we want to be in the world. Um, so again, it's a gray area. It's not that no pushing back is at all understandable. It is completely understandable. But taking the law into your own hands and hurting people who may be totally innocent is a desecration of Israel's reputation. It's a desecration of God's sacred name. Um, again, very, very complicated. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Uh, are you still um, holding out for a two-state solution? Is that still your, or is there, I don't know, you, are you considering any other alternatives? The two-state solution is dead. I am I, here to sign the death certificate with sadness, right? Because I don't, again, here's gray. I do not want to be, the part of the Israel that has its boot over three and a half million Arabs, 
who don't have a passport to any country, um, who live with a certain degree of unpredictability because, look, their civil rights are not the same as my civil rights. My civil rights and the, Arab, and the rights of an Israeli, Israeli Arab are identical. Um, there's discrimination like there is in every country against minorities, unfortunately, but working on that. But the Palestinians is a whole different issue. Right. The problem is, is that, you know, time is um, both not on their side and on their side. They believe that time is on their side because eventually demographics are going to win out. But time is not on their side in the sense that it's hardening Israel. And you can see in how the voting went for this particular government. People voted for Ben Gvir and Smotrich, not because they wanted the hooligan factor, as I would call it, but they mm -hmm. wanted people who were finally going to call it like they see it with Israel, the, the Palestinians and say, come on, it's not going to be a state. So what are we pretending for? Um, I think the date of the two-state solution has gone, but that does not mean that the Palestinians have to live under occupation forever. We have to figure out a way for them to feel autonomous and independent and for Israel's security needs to be met. Um, I'm going to remind you, Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, the United States has had those territories for a very, very long time. And I challenge you to go to Congress and find the Puerto Rican congressman or senator. Uh, right. They don't exist. Now, right. again, I'm not suggesting that life in Puerto Rico is just like it is in the West Bank. It's not. But the United States captured Puerto Rico in a war, I would just point out, in 1898, one year after the first Zionist Congress, I guess. But um, it's been 120 years. There's been ups and downs in that relationship, but the world says, oh, you can never keep territory that you capture in war. Well, what's Puerto Rico? What's St. Oh, Thomas? Right. I mean, what are the American Virgin Islands? What's Guam, etc.? cetera? Yeah. Um, I would like us not to have control of those lands, uh, but the way that the Palestinian Authority is comporting itself, denying that the Jews are indigenous here, denying that the Jews ever had a temple, denying that the Jews have any place in the Middle East, that just rubs Israelis so wrong. They say, oh, that's your attitude. Then you're basically just waiting to get rid of us. In which case, the last thing we're going to do is give you a country from which you can launch those attacks. How do we know that you're not going to turn the West Bank into what we let Gaza become when we pulled out of there and had no guide, you know, guardrails for what, you, what they were going to do? So I don't think we're going to see a two-state solution at any point in the near future, certainly not in my lifetime. But that does not mean that the status quo has to remain We've got to be very creative about how to have Palestinians feel that they did not live under Israeli boots and Israelis not feel that they have to live under a fear of the Palestinians. My, my mm -hmm. friend and teacher, Micha Goodman, who I, I'm, I'm sure you know very well, um, has a great line in his book, Catch 67. Towards the end, he says, it's, it's just Micha so brilliant at this kind of stuff. He says, basically, the Palestinians are animated by humiliation and the Jews are animated by fear. Everything that the Jews do to lessen their fear increases Palestinian humiliation. And everything that the Palestinians do to decrease their humiliation increases the Jews' fear. And it's obviously much more complicated than that, but that is yeah, so right. insightful. And yeah. we've got to figure out a way that their humiliation decreases and our fear decreases at the same time. And do you feel, thank you, and do you feel that... Um as a, an Israeli Jew now, as an American Jew living in Israel, um, do you feel that, um, you know, because you, you wrote a book, We Stand Divided, uh, where you elaborate on the, the profound differences and really some of the moral commitments between Israelis and American, American Jews. Um, have they changed at all since your book? Or maybe you want to just speak to that a little because, you know, I, I, I'm very much, I've always been 
in your sort of camp, just intellectually on, on the issue, but um, I'm servicing, my students are all in their 20s and 30s. Right. And 20s and 30s, you know, millenniums are, you know, are left of center here in the United States. And so not everybody shares that view. Just wondering, um, I don't even know if I have a specific question. Maybe you could just speak. Yeah, to look, it. I think that uh, the book came out in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. I think that's when it was. And um, I did not think it was a very controversial thesis. It turns out that I was wrong. It was a very controversial thesis. Um, and a lot of the leadership of the liberal movements, like Rabbi Eric Yaffe of the reform movement, um, took me on, you know, directly. And that's, it's all good. I mean, we're not the first two Jews to have a disagreement about something <laughs> over a written word. A written word. That's fine. Exactly. Um, look, I think that in America, there's, there's a whole bunch of issues, but I'll just kind of give bullet points. Number one, that America, Judaism is fundamentally a religion. Religions don't have states. I mean, where's the evangelical state? Where's the Methodist state? Where's the, you know, whatever. Um, there are states that are largely Catholic, that's true. And there are states that are, uh, you know, Church of England, that's true. But they weren't created for that. That happens to be their characteristic. The Jews should have a state, why? I mean, the Basques don't have a state. The Chechnyans don't have a state. The Kurds don't have a state. So people ask, well, why should we have a state uh, when other peoples don't? It's an understandable question, but it cuts back to what we were talking about earlier in our conversation. If you know anything about Jewish history and the reality that the Jews were trying to escape and the new Jew that they were trying to create, well, then you understand that. Yeah. Another piece is that Jews have always been, um, you know, very, very worried about this accusation of dual loyalty. And Jews in, in Zionism was a movement and before Israel was a state, were just beginning to be comfortable in America. Woodrow Wilson was going around the country to all these uh, ceremonies where people becoming naturalization ceremonies that were becoming citizens. And he would say, there's no hyphens here. No Austrian-Americans, no mm -hmm. German-Americans, no Italian-Americans. As long as you have that hyphen, you are not, he said, and he spoke in male language, what can you do? You are not a son worthy of standing under the stars and stripes. And Jews were like, mm -hmm. oh, my God, if we do the Zionist thing, what are people going to say about us? So they were trying to help, but trying to stay under the radar. And I think now, I mean, we have, uh, by the I way, it's, Brooklyn, we, have a, we have a long history of that. I mean, that happened in Germany in a very serious Of course. Of course. And the same thing with Dreyfus. I mean, there's there's been all sorts of stuff. In the sense that Jews must by definition be disloyal because they're not part of the main uh, part of the main mm -hmm. ethnicity of the country. Uh, and by the way, I just want to point out this has not gone away. So I will cite two presidents, one from each side of the aisle. Now, President Barack Obama, um, when Bibi Netanyahu was pushing against the uh, um, the Iranian. American agreement about the, the, the Iran deal, um, he went to Addis Israel, which is a large conservative congregation in the Washington area. He gave a very open speech, and he basically said, if you support Netanyahu on this and not me, then you're speaking as a Jew and not as a loyal American. It's pretty out oh. there. I mean, the only reason I know about that speech is because it got a ton of play. I, I wasn't there. Um, I've read it a couple of times. He was pretty out there. And then you may recall that, ben, uh, that, that uh, Donald Trump said to a bunch of Jewish Republican leaders, I just got off the phone with your prime minister, which he did not mean in a nasty way at all, of course, but it's what he said. Accidentally. He's not, BB's not their prime minister. <laughs> Donald Trump was their president. He was president of the United right. States. They're not Israeli citizens. Right. So there's this notion that even in trying to make a, like a kind of a Hevraman, look how close I am to you guys. Yeah. He actually revealed that, well, that guy actually is your president. He's not. You're their prime minister. So 
this this dies very hard. So part of it is that religions have states. Religions don't have states. Peoples have states. And Jews in America don't really think of themselves as. No, but I, I I do believe that during the Obama administration, I think Jews were forced to choose um, on some level. It, it did reveal a little: Are you American first? Are you Jewish second? Or Zionist second? Because correct. You know, Correct, that's true. But I mean, part of the question is, would that have been the case if Bibi had not come to a joint session of Congress, which he knew the president did not want him to come to um, and get involved in American politics? I think what Bibi did there was a mistake. Um, It it was a mistake. First of all, it didn't work, right? Um, It didn't work. The United States passed the Iran deal anyway. And more importantly, it made Israel a wedge issue by implanting himself in a divide between a Congress, a Republican Congress, that was very anti-Obama and clearly taking the side of the Republican leadership. Um, he made Israel something that we had been very careful for 60 years, 70 years, not to make it, which was a wedge issue. Immigration would always be a wedge issue. Abortion would be a wedge issue. Although I just heard him, uh, he was interviewed, and was just interviewed on Lex Friedman's podcast. I don't know if you listened to mm-hmm. him. And... Um, he said that he started getting calls. Now, I don't know if this is true. This is what he said. He started getting calls from uh, some of the Sunni uh, Arab states after he made that, gave that speech uh, to the joint uh, session of Congress because they saw how dead set he was uh, against Iran. And that was the beginning of conversations because they felt they had uh, you know, an ally in Israel in terms of Iran. This is what he said. That could be true, even if they didn't actually call him up, which is a little hard to believe. Uh, you know, Benjamin, you have a second. It's shake whoever. I, I, uh, whatever. Okay. There's no question that they were actually attracted to Israel uh, because of their fear of an Iranian nuclear weapon. But again, the world's a changing place, right? Iran and Saudi Arabia are now cozying up to each other. Um, Egypt and Iran are, are kind of trying to thaw the chill. So again, the world is a very changing place. They are definitely afraid of Iran. They are definitely not cozying up as much as they pretend they're cozying up. But Israel was going to be an important strategic ally in its opposition to the Iranian nuclear. They, they knew where Israel stood, whether or not Bibi stood in, the, in front of a joint session of Congress. They didn't go, oh my God, look at that. He's really against it. They knew very well he was against it. He'd said it at the UN a whole bunch of times and so on right. and so forth. Again, you know, some people think it was very important what he did. Uh, I am concerned that it made Israel a wedge issue. So the young people that you work with um, are really, I think, stuck in a very, very problematic place. First of all, because it's very hard to explain why this religion would have a country when others don't. They don't. They need to be reminded by scholars like you um, that we're a people. We have a religious component, but we're a people, right? You can't say Uh, I'm a Methodist. I don't believe in Jesus at all. I don't believe in God at all. I never go to church. Oh, but I am a deeply committed Methodist. That doesn't mean anything. To say that I've never been in a shul and I don't believe in God and I don't fast on Yom Kippur, but I'm a deeply committed Jew, that makes perfectly good sense. I mean, you may or may not want to try to get people to rethink some of those positions, but that's not a crazy thing to say. Um, So we are a people, but I don't think we've taught, we've done a good enough job in our American Jewish educators explaining that. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I use um, is, is and it's mentioned in, in the Gemara and the Talmud that when someone is converting to Judaism, that they're really accepting two things into their lives, the A, the peoplehood, and B, the religion. And that's a huge chiddush. That's a new insight for most right. American Jews 
who grew up in more of a Christian country, which is, you know, that's your religion, but I'm an American. And this, that's difficult because it's, it, it rubs people the wrong way because they haven't been raised to think of their Judaism as an ethnicity, as a peoplehood. Right. But, you know, that's her job. Correct. I mean, think about, I mean, you know very well, and I'm sure you've taught it many times, what Ruth says, what Romy says to Ruth when, when she becomes, you know, Ruth becomes, right? Um, right? Your, your people is my people and your God is my God. It's wrapped up together. It's not one or the other. It's both wrapped up together. Um, and so I think, by the way, the other point we should make is that young millennials are um, are facing a very grave challenge, which is very hard for them. And I do understand the discomfort and the pain that I think all of us who are not of that generation need to have a, a, a real sense of the complexity that this raises for them. What's called in America intersectionality, which is that kind of the liberal agenda is a package of ideas. You have to be pro-choice. Uh, you have to be concerned about climate change. You have to be opposed to absolutely closed American borders, uh, a whole set of things. And by the way, I might agree with a lot of those issues. And you have to be pro-Palestinian independence, anti-Israel. And what happens for a young American on campus, especially, is they say, no, I, I'm with you on climate, and I'm with you on immigration, and I'm with you on abortion, and I'm with you maybe even on gender stuff, but I'm deeply committed to Israel, and I want to try to explain something to you, yeah. conversation over. And, yeah, and that's a way, very painful out, place for people that's to be. That's very difficult. And that came out during COVID. Right. Because the, the Black Lives Matter, you know, I had a lot of students who marched. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a Palestinian flag next. And I had that get in there, you know. Right. And, and it, it became part of the, you know, I, I got into a fight. My brother's a mayor in Englewood, New Jersey. And he went Black Lives Matter every week on Shabbat. He walked with people. And it started becoming an issue. I was like, you know, Michael, you know. You're also a Zionist. Like, what's right. going on? Right. And the Black Lives Matter a movement, which has really no reason to have a stand on Zionism or Israel at all. I mean, their issue should be. And if anything, by the way, I mean, Israel has been unbelievably more successful in bringing together people of different races than most Western democracies have been. Totally. Right, look at America. Look at France and the riots in France recently. But look at Ethiopian Jews. Look at Israeli Arabs. Uh, again. Problem free, obviously not, but huge success stories, equally obviously yeah. so. Um, but why does Black Lives Matter have to have a stand on Israel and the Palestinians? It's it, not it, it their issue. It was co opted. It, it shouldn't. Exactly. It and that makes it really hard for millennials. I want to. I want to jump in. I want to stay on the millennials issue because this is very personal. Um, and there was an article you wrote um, almost ten years ago. I think it was two thousand fourteen. Uh, it was called the likely demise of conservative Judaism. And it was, to me, it, it was such a powerful article, um, not because of what it said about conservative Judaism per se. You did mention, you said, and I, I have the article here, you said how in 1971, 41% of American Jews were affiliated with conservative movement. And then the new Pew study had just come out, I guess, after you wrote the article, right before. Right before, uh, I think, and it, yeah. Went, it went down to like 11% of Jews under 30, you know, um, to find themselves as conservative Jews. It was, it was a tough article for me to read, honestly, because even though I'm, I'm more affiliated, obviously, with the Orthodox community, I'm like Joe Modern Orthodox, but, you know, <laughs> my students, I'm, I'm literally a poster child at Yeshiva University. I know you are at JTS. At the Jewish no, Theology. believe me, I am not. I am a persona non grata, I think, but we'll, we'll now, get back to that in a second. Now, 
Yeah. But I mean, yeah. you, you, you studied there, your family. I mean, you have, you have yeah, my, my, my uncle was the chancellor. My grandfather was a professor of Bible. Yeah. I mean, the family has a long JTS, whatever. Um, but I'm, I, you will not see me on any JTS posters or advertisements anymore. I assure you. In fact, they've probably Photoshopped me out of the graduating <laughs> class, but that's okay. It's been known to happen uh, in orthodox circles also. <laughs> well, I know you didn't, you didn't write the article for me, but it was, on one hand, it, it was, first of all, it was a brilliant article because it so accurately depicted what I think is happening with young people. Um, you know, so I have a couple of questions about this. And maybe we could just spend our remaining few minutes on this, if that's okay, transitioning with pleasure. into the United States with pleasure. now. Um, you know, my fear, you know, and is still is that if the conservative reform movements are producing less young people, then programs like Manhattan Jewish Experience that basically are working off of, you know, occasionally I'll get someone that's completely unaffiliated that had no affiliation with the reform movement, with the conservative Judaism. But most of the people who come around to programs like I run, let's be honest, are, are, are coming out of the conservative reform movement. And um, right. I have a lot of hakaratatov, a lot of gratitude to those movements because that's, that's, that's our population. And after I read your article, I was like, at some point, I guess this is going to, the party's going to be over. The outreach party. Well, uh, uh, I don't know if the party's going to be over. Look, I think that people have, people have needs, right? They need oxygen. They need food. They need water. They need companionship. Solitary confinement is terrifying because we need to be in dialogue with each other. We need to be able to, but we need certain things. And I would say that I'm sure you would agree. We also have spiritual needs. We need to feel yeah. part of something larger than ourselves. And, uh, you know, if we don't worship God, we're going to worship something else. We're going to worship money. We're going to worship our youth. We're going to worship looks. We're going to worship having stuff. We're going to worship something. We're all going to worship something in some way. And people who don't worship anything, they worship not worshiping that. They worship the communities in which that has been exiled. So I think young Jews, even if, you know, 20 years from now, uh, conservative Judaism and Reform Judaism have shrunk even further. Um, young Jews are going to need help finding uh, their place in the cosmos. And I think what you do is so critically important because that's what you're offering them. You're offering them a way to understand Judaism, not as silly little Hebrew school stuff that was boring then and certainly more boring now, and not boring services in some cavernous cathedral-like sanctuary, which was, you know, one-fifth full and a cantor going on and on. And you just sit there. I mean, I watch these people when I go to these synagogues. You know, my rabbi friends always say to me, it's just unbelievable how many, how few people come to shul these days. And then I go to their shuls and I say, it's just unbelievable how many people do go to shul these right. days. Right. Because reality. seriously, I mean, right. I go to a shul here in Yerushalayim. It starts at 730 on Shabbat. Or it's an Orthodox shul. Uh, it starts at 730 in the morning. It's over at nine. And the entire time I am busy saying something. Maybe except for the Torah reading, right? But I mean, I'm busy doing something. Although I never sit there passively and just oh, listen. It's the kiss of death, passive. It's the kiss of death, and I'm not listening to anybody else sing, and I'm not doing any responsive readings. I am engaged in trying to feel God's presence, and uh, sometimes it works better, and sometimes it works worse. We all know that davening, that prayer, is actually one of the hardest commandments. Not to fulfill the obligation to say the words, which is in itself not so easy, because it's three times a day. But to feel that I'm actually coming closer to God by doing this thing, okay, it's hard. It's, it, it depends a lot on what baggage I'm bringing to the service. And, you know, are things good with my kids? Are things good with my wife? Are things good with my job? Are things good in the country I love? 
all of that comes to bear, but I'm not listening to anybody else sing. Nobody else is saying to me, okay, turn to this page. We're going to read these lines responsibly. I mean, did anybody ever go to a responsive reading and say, oh my God, I wish we could do that again. <laughs> right. I mean, we've all pressed repeat on the radio or on a CD or listening to, you know, Spotify or whatever, because we just, that song touches us so deeply. Right. You say, as you're driving in the car, I want to hear that again. We all do it because music touches us, but not that kind of music. So I think I, 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 I wouldn't be as worried as you are. In other words, I think that the young Jews, even if they don't fight right now, you're finding yourself, you know, working with people that came from the conservative reform movement uh, because that's what there was. But these Jews are going to have to, they're not going to disappear. People do want to be part of something and they're going to find that they didn't get the kind of education. I see it yeah. every day. We have, we're tonight, we're, we have a rooftop, which is one of the best things about our organization is the rooftop. We have 165 <laughs> People signed up for TLVs. It's like a Tel Aviv night on the roof, you know, That's and so cool. they're coming to meet. They're coming to connect with each other. And right. know, it's funny the way you said it. You know, I work so hard that that the minion that we have is inspirational. I used to run what I used to call a classic Buchwaldian. I don't know if you know Effie Buchwald, started the National sure, of course, of course. So you had these you had these classic beginner services, and um, where they're very educational. And interesting, but they were not uplifting because you don't have the singing and you kind of have to choose. You, you can't always have both. You can't, so, it's hard to do both. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, we have, um, like, I, I don't just have, I, I, I'm, we're done with Chazanim. It, it's, it's about Tzfila. And there's a big, right. there's a big, right. The huge difference. Big, yeah. But, but since somebody who knows how to get other people to sing and someone that's standing, next to them because the psychology of somebody who walks in, open up the prayer book and they just listen. And that it's it just, it's not engaging. So that's incredibly important. I want to go back to your article. I want to go back to your article. Um, you said something so powerful you wrote, and I quoted here, you attributed the decline in the numbers. Um, you were speaking specifically about the conservative movement because that the leaders were expecting less of their congregations. You said reduced mm -hmm. educational demands, sanitize worship reconfigured to meet the declining knowledge levels of their flocks. And what my question is, is, was that the main thrust of what you think went wrong or is going wrong? Is that they're dumbing Judaism down and it's just not, it's not engaging enough therefore because it's too light. Look, um, that's part of it. It's a big part of it. I think that Judaism is very hard it's very hard to feel inspired and moved by Judaism if you don't know a fair amount. It's just not a tradition that is kind to the newcomer. Um, so while I'm sure you're working very hard not to do the Buchwaldian minion and to be very inspirational, I'm sure if somebody comes to you for a year, they know a hell of a lot more after a year than they did a year before. Um, and they, they're, they're learning what it is to daven. They're learning what is, what is a Shema, what is an Amida, what are we doing here? They, they feel like they're Whatever. But when I cut Hebrew school down from, you know, originally four days a week to three days a week to two days a week to Sunday morning, how much am I going to be able to understand? I'm going to open up the Sidor and I'm, it might as well be in Chinese. I really have no idea what it is. Um, and therefore, therefore, I have to, by the way, be performed to. So what are these, what are these, a lot of these synagogues now call their cantors? They don't call them cantors anymore, a chazan. They call them cantorial soloists. Exactly the opposite of what you're doing. Exactly the opposite. 180 degrees opposite of what you're doing. 
So I think, yeah, we stop teaching them a lot. If you don't know history, it's hard to feel the power and the glory of what's been created in Israel. And if you don't know anything about the Bible, it's hard to understand how Israel is a continuation of the story that the Bible tells. And if you don't know anything about the Bible, then you don't understand about anything about that we are the basis of Western civilization in a meaningful way. And if you don't know Bible and Talmud and some, you know, not the whole thing necessarily, but have an appreciation of the richness of the text, then somebody says Greco-Roman civilization, you think, oh my God, the great ideas that shaped our world, the great thinkers, the great this and the great that. And somebody says Jewish civilization, oh yeah, Noah and the animals, two by two or seven by seven, I forget which one it was, but of course it was both. Um, we just don't, we've not given people a sense of the grandeur of this thing. Um, but that takes an investment. Uh, look, is it is it harder to be, is it harder to get into Harvard or some, you know, other, you know, third rate place? It's a lot harder to get into Harvard. And the fact that it's Harvard and that it's harder to get in and it's harder to stay in, does that mean people want to be part of it more or less? Well, there you go, right? I mean, they want to be part of something that has standards. Um, and what I, you know, the conservative movement kept moving the line on all sorts of Jewish ritual things. Well, they're not going to do this anymore. So we'll, I mean, think of you one example, driving on Shabbat. People were going to drive to Shabbat anyway, no matter what the rabbi said or didn't say. So in the Orthodox shul that I grew up with in Baltimore, um, the, there was a chain across the parking lot on Shabbat. Um, but you could not find a parking space anywhere around that shul on any Shabbat morning. Did the rabbi know they were driving? course he knew they were driving right um i mean we didn't because <laughs> we were the one conservative family that went to this orthodox shul and we didn't drive but okay but all the other now, now i'm sure that at that same shul today nobody's driving because the ethos changed but uh, he didn't feel and he was a wonderful man this rabbi he didn't feel that because he knew all his congregants were driving they needed to issue some sort of statement oh by the way it's okay to drive no he just kept his mouth shut they knew what he thought and over the course of time, what did people do? They bought and sold houses and moved closer and closer towards the shul as kids got more and more involved. In the conservative movement, exactly the opposite happened. Because demographics were changing, all of a sudden, oh, the rabbinical assembly said, I can drive. People spread out completely. And what did that do? It destroyed communities. You weren't walking home with people on shul. You weren't walking home and saying, hey, you know what? Why don't you just come to our house for lunch? Go get the stuff that you have on your hot plate and bring it over to our house and we'll eat together. That's it, it eradicated that it uprooted that, and um, so and it was done part. out of the best of intentions. It was done out of in a sense that, well, if we know they're all going to drive and we want them to feel that they're committed to the world of Jewish law, then let's maybe somehow erase the difference between them and what Jewish law is saying. It was done out of the best of intentions. I mean, really, these, these are the rabbis here weren't trying to destroy Judaism, they weren't right. trying to destroy Torah. No, they didn't say. They were, so they made a mistake. I think they had a fundamentally flawed way of thinking about it. It's interesting because I always said they never said it was okay to drive to the mall. They said to the synagogue, you know, yeah. and but but I think the erosion of the tight knit walking distance community thing was devastating. And correct. Um, and that is, I would say, the big, you know, we bring, I don't know, small groups, 25, 35 MGE participants to different modern Orthodox communities. And it's a bit of a, it's a little of a culture shock depending on the community, although it's very nice. You know, right. I, I do it for fundraising purposes too. So we tend to stay in the nicer homes and they're like walking around. Is this what happens if I become Orthodox? Wow, okay, <laughs> yeah. I'll take this. Um, so, but it's like, 
it's a radically different kind of life where your kids are running inside and out of people's backyards and homes and everyone's having Shabbos meals. It's so attractive to Correct. someone that didn't, you know, that, that wasn't raised with that. But the reason that somebody who's never, somebody who's never been to an Orthodox synagogue or lived in an Orthodox community, I have to think that the thing that most shocks them about an Orthodox synagogue before they've gotten to the sanctuary is the horrifying amalgam of strollers piled on top of each other in the hallway. Right. I'm like, what the hell? Right. It's a high, it's a fire hazard. How are you going to ever find your right stroller? But it tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. It just tells you everything you need to know about the community. Yeah, the now, maybe that in your community, people aren't quite at that stage of life yet. Some of them probably are. Some of them probably aren't. But um, that's kind of the fingerprint of a thriving traditional Jewish community is stroller derby. And, um, you know, I think that that doesn't really happen as much once you say to people, live wherever you want and come back here. It just right. doesn't, it doesn't happen. But again, it's really important for me as somebody who's, you know, grandfather and two uncles were, were all in the faculty of JTS and one was the chancellor of JTS and somebody like me who, I got a fabulous Jewish education at JTS. I mean, I learned how to learn Gemara. I don't think when I got out, I knew less Gemara than people that had gone to other places mm -hmm. that we won't mention mm -hmm. right now. Um, <laughs> one of them you might know very well. But, um, you know, because some of us really sat on our tushes and we learned all day. I mean, we really did. So some of us got really great educations. Um, I feel a tremendous harak hakaratato to, to JTS and the conservative movement also. But I have to say that 40 years after ordination, or yeah, 40 years after ordination, basically, um, 42, 40, no, 40. Um, wow. Wow. It, 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 was, it was animated by the best of intentions. Right. It just didn't work. It didn't work. And I think um, the challenge for all of us now is to be honest and to look around the Jewish community and say, what's working? What's bringing young people in? And if you're the rabbi of a conservative synagogue, by the way, and there are some of them that are packed with young people who are mm -hmm. keeping Shabbos and keeping Kashrut and their kids are coming back to that show. So don't change anything. It's working. Right. If it's right. working, it's working. But nationally, one has to ask oneself, um, what's attracting people? Why? What is Rabbi Wild? offering that um you know what's the wilds trick what's the wilds recipe uh and i think it's community it's torah it's mitzvot it's warmth um and that works so we have to you know the world jewish world is blessed that you're doing the work that you're doing it works and and i'll just add into that just to, to sort of bring this full circle israel because uh i still you know, when people ask what is the most powerful uh, program that we run, we're coming to Israel, please God, in about 10 days after Tisha B'Av, it's still the most powerful thing we do. Right. There's, there's still no, you know, I, there's nothing I can do. We, we have a great ski retreat. We go to Vermont and we bring people away four days. That's like immersive and it's skiing and it's Shabbat. It's awesome. Spring retreat. We, we do all these fun things. But uh, I don't know, just walking with them in the tunnel tours, you know, in, in Yushalayim or going to Hebron or it's still a game. It's that's, I, I still think that's our most powerful that's the game changer. tool in the Look, prison. because it comes back, really comes back full circle to the very beginning of our conversation, because there they see Jewish life in, you know, five dimensions, yeah. um, you know, history, language, ethnicity, geography, uh, the, the new Jew, culture. I mean, you bring it all together and you have a very, very powerful, uh, really unreplicated uh, experience. And when the world looks at Israel, part of the reason the world is so 
focus sometimes too much, I think, on Israel is because it's just hard to believe what's been created here. It's just hard to believe that these people did this. Uh, by the way, it was so powerful that the Palestinians said, we want that. There was no Palestinian national movement in the 40s or the 50s. Wasn't until the early 60s that the Palestinians saw this country really kind of lifting up. And they're like, oh, my God, look at that. Um, yeah. But we've been democratic all the way through. We've been focusing on education. It was a different world. But um, I hope that they have that one day. But, but, the, but what touches the people that you bring to Israel is they take everything that you've already taught them and given them, and now they see it brought to, you know, it's like uh, Wizard of Oz. You go from black and white to technicolor. Um, <laughs> that's what it is. And they just totally. see it in its totally. full grandeur. And then they want to know, how do I tap into that sense of power? And I also think, I, and, I, and, and your, the, the, the book I quoted from before that you wrote um, really speaks to this. Um, Israel also is sort of almost a, a validation, all, almost like an authentic authentication of a lot of these stories that are kind of like fairy tale. The stories of the Torah and the stories of the temple and the stories of the Jewish return, they're nice, they're pleasant. But they don't feel real. Um, they so used you to have see it here. Like, this is where it happened. This is it. You see, and then I—that's why I love bringing archaeologists. Maybe they're observant. Maybe they're not observant. I don't really care. But they can open up a Tanakh and identify a certain right. place with a certain event. That's like a—I I just think that's—I mean—that made a huge difference in my life growing up, and I know it 100%. does. percent. But, um, you know, and I tell people the, the famous story, Rabbi Akiva comes out of Jerusalem when the temple's about to be destroyed, and he goes and he meets the Roman, the head of the Roman legions there. Um, I tell Israelis, do you know where that took place? They're like, yeah, someplace outside of the city. I said, no, no, we actually know where it was. It's where Kikar Safra is. It's where City Hall is today. And really? all of a sudden they say, yeah, they say, oh, my God, like, that's where it was. I say, yeah, that's exactly where it was. Or I tell them about the the, the, the highway that goes from Jerusalem towards the towards the east, right? Towards East Jerusalem and the Hebrew University, whatever. And I say, what happened there thousands of years ago? I don't know. That's the path that the Babylonians led the Jews on when they exiled them. They came out of the city, they made a right, and they made a right. And the road that I drive to the Dead Sea or to Hebrew University's Scopus campus is the road that they walked. They just kept walking for a much, much longer time till they got to Babylonia. And then when I drive that road now, I never just think, oh, my God, there's traffic on the way to Scopus. I think it's traffic. It's true. It's a little bit of a pain in the neck. But I'm on exactly the same road that my ancestors were on in 586 BCE. How many other peoples that were exiled for thousands of years can say in the 21st century, I'm on the same road where my ancestors were 2,500 years ago? Wow. And then I think, it's hard here. It's hot here. It's crowded here. It's stressful here. And there's nowhere else in the world that I'd want to be. Wow. Thank you. Uh, that's an amazing way to end this conversation. Dr. Gordis, Dr. Daniel Gordis, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Hashem should bless you with continued wisdom, insight, and you should keep writing. I love all of your books. And anyone who's listening to this, <clears throat> uh, we will post... <clears throat> Uh, Blee Nether, we will post some of um, Dr. Gordis's amazing articles and books. You can get that article that I was referring to before, back from 2014, we talked about. Uh, but just any of his books are amazing. They really do capture uh, the incredible Jewish story. And I thank you for your time and uh, just continued nachas from everything you do.
for the Jewish people. Thank you very much. Hatzlacha to you too. Thanks for all you do for the Jewish people. And I look forward to thanking you in person when you're here or I'm there. Amen.